0: Welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast, where we believe that no matter what you've gone through in life, God is inviting you to partner with Him to take back your story. On this podcast, we have inspiring conversations with people who are doing just that. And now, your hosts, Davey Blackburn and Aubrey Sampson. Hello, welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Davey Blackburn, and... Aubrey unfortunately is not joining me today. This is the last segment that she is sick. Now obviously I told you a couple a couple episodes ago that we batch record these intros and outros and she just happened to be sick when we were batch recording the these 3, this block of 3 episodes. And so you're stuck with me again, unfortunately, but I'm going to be short and concise and get to the point because we have an incredible conversation today to share with you when I sat down with Dr. Kurt Thompson. And if you have been walking a pain journey um, for any matter of time and you've not heard of Dr. Kurt Thompson, I'm telling you, I'm about to turn you on to somebody who is just unbelievable. Um, I was actually introduced to Dr. Kurt Thompson through um, someone who works for us and nothing is wasted, Catherine Fitzgerald. And I'm telling you, as soon as I started re- digging into some of his stuff, and, and and then of course this conversation with him, I was just riveted. I mean, he's my new hero, to be honest with you. Um, sometimes you have those conversations where you're just like, man, I could sit down and talk to you for hours and hours and hours and hours and just listen and absorb uh, all the, the just the wisdom that you have. And um, Dr. Kurt Thompson's a very cerebral person, and so he loves to uh, he, he he loves to integrate. these two ideas, science and faith, uh, because he's a psychiatrist. And he's a psychiatrist who weaves together an understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian worldview to help us understand what it means to truly be human. And, And so through workshops, speaking engagements, books, organizational consulting, private clinical practice, and other platforms, he helps people process their longings, grief, identity, purpose, perspective of God, and perspective of humanity, And um, invites them to engage more authentically with their own stories and their relationships. Okay, as you hear that, couldn't be a better fit for Nothing Is Wasted Ministries and how we're trying to resource you as you're walking through your own pain journey. And so, of course, if you've been around for any matter of time, you know I love to talk about, have conversations and the integration between science and faith and how our bodies were designed by God to, uh, one, deal with trauma and then. Uh, how God designed us to heal through trauma as well. And so this is just a riveting conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. I'm telling you, you're going to want to look up everything that he has written, everything that he has spoken about, every conversation he's ever had on any platform after you listen to him because he's just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, Listen, if this conversation ministers to you or if any of our other podcast episodes have ministered to you and impacted you in any way, would you do us a favor and go and rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Um, I mean, if, if there's nothing else that you do to engage with Nothing Is Wasted Ministries, if you just did this one thing, that would be amazing. Because what this does is this allows more and more people to get access to and to, um, there's, to, to get, well, really to get access to the stories that we're sharing right, ha- right here. Because when you rate and review something on Apple Podcasts, somehow the algorithm that they use, it causes this to kind of become more exposed. And so it pops up in searches more, it pops up on charts and stuff like that. So that that way more people can listen to it. So, um, so go and rate and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear how this is ministering to you as well. It encourages us and make sure you share this episode. This is a great episode to share. Um, afterwards I probably won't do a whole lot of commentary to be honest with you, because this is just going to be so mind blowing that you might want some time to just sit and process it, but I'll, I'll uh, reconnect with you after this conversation and we'll talk a little bit more about it. So, uh, let's go ahead and listen into this conversation I have with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Well, Doctor Kurt Thompson, it's so great to have you on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: You know, we we jump on oftentimes with guests, and I don't know you, and you don't me, know me, except for you know a, a few minutes of just some interchange beforehand. But I can already tell I'm. This is going to be such a wonderful, rich conversation, mm. um, just by your spirit and your demeanor. Mm. And so I'm just so grateful for mm. gi- giving us the mm. time and letting our community just really glean from your work and what you're doing in the world. Well, it's.
1: Uh... As I, uh, my, my friends know that I say that I don't deserve my life and, uh, Mm. uh, this would be one more, uh, reason for why that's true. So it's, it's great to be able to, I mean, the whole notion of, uh, uh, the on-ramp to your podcast, you know, the events that, uh, foreshadowed it, Mm. uh, And the people that have been drawn to it as a result to tell their stories as you were describing that they have, uh, those are the stories of people who are, you know, working their tails off to get through their days. And, uh, so for people who know what it means to work really hard to live in the real world, uh, it's, it's always humbling and an honor to be in the room with you. So thanks for
0: having me. Yeah. Mm, thank you. Well, you know, uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of, you know, kind of preface to, to who you are in case <laughs> in case some of our listeners have, have never heard of you. Tell us, you know, who you are, what your family's like, where you live. Just give us a kind of a overview of Dr. Kurt Thompson.
1: Yeah. Uh, 10,000 foot flyby. I uh, and the fourth of four sons grew up in a very small town in eastern ohio uh, no stoplights 800 people in that town called mount pleasant uh my brothers were 18 16 and 11 when i was born my parents were in their mid-40s so that has shaped a lot of my story uh my father passed away when i was 17 and in the last 17 years i've lost all three of my brothers to cancer uh so that's been shaping and um Uh, Because of my age and kind of like the developmental realities of my life and family and so forth, I was uh, around uh, people—I mean, I I was uh, around people who were dying early in my life and often, just because of kind of the nature of where I showed up in my family. uh, there has been a uh, there have been literally infinite numbers of ways in which God has graced my life with life, though uh, not least of which my, my wife of over thirty five years, Phyllis, and we have two kids a daughter who's twenty one uh, two daughter who's thirty one and a son who's twenty eight, um, whom I love fiercely and who uh, teach me every day that even when your children are adults, you still want to be in charge of their life and uh you know they're 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 oh, well. they're still trying to train me in learning how not to be in charge of your adult children's lives and uh so uh, anyway yeah, they you're not encouraging me there right there I've they're, got an eight year
0: old <laughs> seven year old and a two year old so far I've got the upper hand but <laughs> yeah, yeah they will
1: be thirty eight thirty seven and thirty two and you <laughs> will want to run their life. Uh, I, I, say this with just, uh, the gradation of gratitude. And I, and I would also say that I, uh, I said earlier, I don't deserve my life. And I, and I, and I think that one of, uh, if, if I were to say, well, what is the, what, what might be like the, the signature, uh, uh, thing that represents that reality is that I, I have friends in my life and these are, some of these are work friends that I work with. These are friends that are in my circle that I've known everything from since I was 12 to people that I've known closely over the last 35 years. Uh, friends who uh, do not leave me alone, friends who come to find me, friends, uh, I, I, a collection of people by whom, like, who know me well enough, like, there's, there's nothing that they don't know. And, uh, and, if we, and without them, I'm a dead man. And um, this to me is, uh, this is what the body of Christ is to be, is to be this forming, shaping, loving, caring, disciplining uh, uh, body that helps us practice for heaven. And not least of which, um, when everything about the world we're living in uh, tempts us to believe that evil has the last word. Yeah. Uh, not Not just in a big landscape of political and racial rancor and fracture and all the things... But in the in the center of my own soul, the parts, the parts of me that I would much rather kill than Jesus take the time and effort to redeem, it just be a lot simpler to just like give them, like to euthanize them. And then I wouldn't have to like, yeah. I wouldn't have to put up with me. And then I would know that my, like my wife wouldn't have to put up with me. My kids wouldn't have to put up with me. And the part of me that wants to run their life as adults and all, all the things. So <laughs> that's long-winded. That's trying to answer your question there.
0: No. It's so. I mean, it's so appropriate. That's that's where people are coming, and they're and and they're they're almost buying into that belief that evil has had the last word in their life, yeah. and they're looking for some kind of glimmer of hope that that's not the mm-hmm. case. And that's why they're tuning in right mm-hmm. now. And um, and and that's why I appreciate you, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the work that you're doing. You know, one of the things that we we talk we've talked about before on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast this idea of. You know, psychology and faith and the, the combination of those things. It's the thing that you really seem to specialize in, in terms of the work that you do and your writing. And you really bring those two into marrying. I know historically the church has tried to divorce those two things and say, well, our faith is over here and science is over here. And again, I say this every time we talk about this topic science to me should not be something that disproves Christianity. It's something that says, oh, that's how God created things to mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm and mm-hmm. as we discover those things we discover more of who god is and more of who we are and we can have a more intimate relationship with him mm-hmm. and with others mm-hmm. and that's what you talk about so much as you're writing mm-hmm. and i just wonder you know as just in your own story how how did you how did, how has your own story kind of colored this journey to discover more of that to discover more of like how our minds and our faith and our heads and our hearts and how God created, how all those things integrate mm-hmm. and intertwine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the, I think the,
1: the, the way I would begin the, the, my uh, response to your question is, uh, you know, one of the things that we say that we do in, in the work that we do in our practice uh, is that we, our, our job is to help people tell their stories more truly. When we say mm-hmm. that Jesus, when Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life— uh, it's, he's not, uh, the, the, you know, the word truth is not just limited to factual, you know, positional truth. It's this notion that in me, in relationship with me, you sense, you feel you, like you sense in your chest the way you know you should be, like you want to be living, right? There's, there's yeah. that's true. Right. Like, like when a piano is tuned truly, that kind of true, mm. And so we want people's yeah. stories to reflect this. Part of the challenge is that, uh, in order to do this, you know, our our trauma and our losses, uh, uh, often for which we have not uh, healed well from, uh, leave us uh, with coping strategies that make yeah. it difficult for us to imagine that life can be any other way than what it is. And so part of our role in our practice and I would say part of our role as believers being in the world but our role as a practice our role is to help expand people's imagination until they are able to catch up to it and this is what I think mm. Jesus does when he comes this is what I mean yeah. this is what the god of the bible was doing with every encounter that he has like he gets to abraham abraham's you know living in a near eastern ritualist you know religious ritual cult and the God of Elohim comes along, like, it, it, like it, it starts blowing his mind. And the same thing for Moses. And then the same thing for the prophets. And then Jesus comes along and does the same thing. And it's been this excursion of expanding our imagination. Why am I saying all this? Because I was born into a world in which, for many, many years, the separation of things like faith and science from each other had been well-established. Yeah, uh, But I think I, I kind of came into a world in which there were enough people who were uh, aware of this and invited me to begin to imagine, wait a minute, Kurt, what if uh, the fact that we separate these things in and of itself isn't a self-evident fact about science and about faith? What if that's mm-hmm. being told by a different story that got started four or 500 years ago that mm-hmm. doesn't really have to do with either one of them? But that has to do with a guy named Descartes, and it has to do with a lot of other things that were taking place. And so I I say this to our listeners, like, why is this important? Because, you know, it wasn't just that people were introducing me to new ideas about this whole notion that, like, everything about the world that is true is true in Jesus, which means science is true, faith is true. It wasn't just that people were giving me these new ideas. It was the relationships I had with the people from which the ideas come. And as we like to say, like, I, I don't just trust your information. I trust your information because, first of all, like, I see your facial expression and I hear your tone of voice. And I find in you someone that I wish I wasn't talking with over the Internet. I find yeah. in you someone that I wish I was talking with in the room. And that, that you are believable— means that the ideas that you're gonna talk about are worthy of me considering, worthy of me like expanding my imagination as you start to do that. And so and I, and I, and so I enter into this like as a guy who like, temperamentally, I'm a guy who worries a lot if I'm not right. If I don't have like every T crossed, every I dotted to make sure I worry that I'm gonna be wrong and you're gonna find out that I'm wrong and then you're gonna like publicly humiliate. I mean, these this is kind of taken to extremes, but, like, I, I, I don't know if this is a good thing to know that this is what a psychiatrist thinks in his own head, but, you know, so be it. <laughs> but this whole notion of wanting to be right and wanting to make sure that I have all that stuff figured out was a long time, like, big, you know, important to me. And how do we know that science and faith all work together until it became—until uh, in some of these relationships, they, people would ask me the question, well, wait a minute— you know, what is your worry about knowing everything, what science says and feel like, what's that Mm. all about? And as it turns out, that's not about, do I have the right information and the right amount of it? It's ultimately about the question of like, well, what if I happen to be wrong at the end of the day? What my heart really wants to know is that even if I'm wrong, are you still going to love me? This Mm. is not about being right. This is about being loved. Now, it doesn't mean that being right is unimportant. Like, laws of gravity are significant if I'm going to build a plane, right? Yeah. But ultimately, why do I even build a plane? I'm building a plane because I really want to do good, beautiful, loving things to get people from one place to the other. Like, it's really about relationships. And so paying attention to that, when I start to recognize that actually, if I'm, like, whether or not I'm loved is, is, is the thing that is guiding all the other questions about how right I am uh, is something that I have to pay attention to. In my own story of loss and grief and brokenness and, and like, imperfection, I tell people I'm a professional sinner. I'm not, I'm not an amateur at this. Like, I'm really good <laughs> at sinning. I've fa- been doing it I'm for a while. <laughs> doing it for almost 60 years, and I am good at it. Uh, and th- 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 with this in mind, I got I have plenty of neural real estate that is taken up by the parts of me that to this day still worry that I'm going to do something say something wrong and you're going to want to leave. And like leave like catastrophically leave and go tell all your friends to have nothing to do with me kind of leave. And coming into a place where in which you're in in a person in Jesus we have a person who we who we say holds together, like my experience of life such that I don't have to divide these things. Mm. Because I think as you rightly say, faith isn't this abstract thing, as it turns out. Faith is a way that we use, it's a word that we use to describe like a real experience with a real person. Right. A real, real material person, real embodied person. And science is a way that we describe the mechanics of how that all happens. Hmm. That's great. And so the story of what's happening between you and me, we can talk about it in terms of, oh, this is how Kurt trusts him when they're talking. And then we could go back and say, well, let's talk about the quantum mechanics of the light that passes through the Internet, which the two of these gentlemen are talking to each other. That's like neuroscience. It's talking about the mechanics of things. Mm -hmm. But even beyond both of those is our desire to be speaking with one another and speaking to our audience such that those who are hearing uh, will be comforted, will be convicted, will be uh, commissioned Loved,
0: Mm. joyfully, Wow, practicing for heaven. Wow. That's so good. I mean, I just, you know, I think about this, this idea that as cerebral as we want to get to try to deduce what really is, what's going on Mm. in the material and what's going on in the abstract, like we really just want one thing Mm. and that, and that is to be loved, you know, as you're saying, and that is to be whole. Yeah. And to feel whole, you know right to to feel like like we said at the beginning of this conversation, to feel like evil doesn't have the last word because it has fractured our lives, and not just know it cognitively right right but to but to to know it right deep down right right and and that's where you know for me what i'm a little bit kind of a head person with you as well, in that the more I researched this stuff, the more i kind of engaged intellectually with science, mm. it began to color even more my faith mm. and begin to say, oh, wow, this is so helpful, especially and particularly during the season that I was trying to figure out and grapple my way through the dark and this healing from this major tragedy mm. that mm. happened in my life. Mm. Can, can you, you know, that's, that's one of the things I, I know you're really passionate about is just how our brain functions when, and what happens when we undergo some kind of trauma. It doesn't have to be loss per se. You know, we've got a lot of people listening to this, that they're experiencing all kinds of childhood trauma or sexual abuse or betrayal, or, you know, Mm -hmm. lots of the gamut Mm. listening to this, Mm. but they're all wondering, why do I feel this way after this experience? Why can't I shake this? Mm. What's going on with our brain Mm. and why is that affecting, Mm. why is Mm. this trauma affecting us? And then to that, how do we how do we move through mm-hmm. it hmm you know
1: uh, i th- i think what, one of the one of the ways that I respond to this is um uh, by saying that um you know we have we have some fundamental uh emotions that we humans experience that uh we might say we we're, were relatively distressing uh fear would be one anxiety would be one. Um, shame would be one they're 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 primal, they're fundamental, and they are distressing, but they are not overwhelming to a newborn or to an infant because when they start to emerge uh that child will tend to send up a signal they're crying they're doing they're gonna tell you that they're in trouble right. And typically, if you're the parent and you're in earshot, you go to the child and you take steps to intervene. And so the child's capacity to have their distress regulated is what we would call done by a process of co-regulation. They can't Mm -hmm. do it by themselves. They actually need the comforting presence and all that that means interpersonally and neurobiologically of the other in order to... Mm -hmm see them, soothe them, comfort them, so forth and so on, and re-regulate, that's co-regulation. This sits with the text that we read in the second chapter of Genesis when God looks at everybody else and says, like, the zebra's got it, the camel's got it, even the toad's got it, but, like, this dude does not have what this dude needs. It's not good for the man to be alone. And we would suggest that this is an anthropological statement that is not just a comment on the state of one guy— in one plot of garden, hmm. at a certain period of time, this is an anthropological statement that is a comment not just on a person, but on all of us. And not only that, but it 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 speaks to the very nature of how each of our brains work. You know, I've got a hundred billion neurons. You got a hundred billion neurons. You know, they're each one. They're all they're pretty elegant. They can do some pretty amazing things. Each one, but like yeah. all by itself, it doesn't do anything. When yeah. it it is, is it being separated where all the trouble starts. And when I'm anxious, when I'm the newborn, like when I'm distressed, like I sense my separation from something. And the separation is taking place not so much physically. It's not like neurons start to pull apart from each other, but their capacity to connecting with each other in the way that they're intended to, even when we're anxious, mm. give us the sense that we are alone. Anxiety is primarily about the sense of being disconnected, Trauma wow. Trauma takes all those primal distressing affects and accelerates them and distills them to maximal capacity. And so a traumatic event is one in which literally the part of me that senses and images and feels and thinks which are represented by different neural networks different networks throughout the brain different circuitries and that eventually take up location and find themselves on the different sides of the brain but not so much because the left and the right are primarily so different in all the ways that we sometimes imagine but because right. you know that just happens to be where those where those kind of connections land trauma disconnects the capacity of these networks that are typically able to talk to each other and regulate, co-regulate as I'm co-regulating with you, it disconnects that. And so if I'm a victim of everything from a bad traffic accident to a rape to to childhood ongoing sexual abuse or to deprivation, long-term deprivation, my neural networks will tend to do one of two things. They will tend to separate in their connectivity from each other as you and I are also disconnected from each other. And or in cases of deprivation, they simply don't ever get the opportunity to learn to fire and do their work to begin with. I tell people it's kind of like if you have a beautiful vase that is on the table and you want to move it to another room, and I say, David, could you please pick that up and bring that with us? You just pick it up and bring it into the other room but if the vase tips over and shatters into a hundred pieces and then i say could you please bring that with us it's pretty tough to do you you'd need help in putting these pieces back together and this is what trauma does there is our vase but it's shattered into a hundred pieces how am i how's the vase supposed to hold water how's how's it supposed to function when it's like this it's going to need lots of support from perhaps more than one set of hands to get the vase to move from one room to the other. And so neurobiologically, trauma both gives us the felt sense of disintegration within my own mind, the part of me that thinks, doesn't connect always from the part of me that feels, doesn't connect well from the part of me that senses things in my physicality. Mm. I can sometimes have old emotional states from an unfinished, unhealed trauma suddenly intrude back into my present moment when it gets activated by something. People who have PTSD and flashbacks know about right. these kinds of things. We can also, and, and but the other thing that I that we tell people is that trauma doesn't just shatter my experience of myself now. It also shatters my capacity to appropriately perceive what has happened to me. Yeah, yeah. And so I have a trauma and you know, the perception that I have at some point includes me telling the story. If I had only done this, this, and this, or if I had not done this, this, or this, mm. this would have never happened. Wow. Or the the or my perception is there's nothing I can do about this. Yeah.
0: Like so, your story is always skewed.
1: It's always there's fixed. Always a- right. And so I don't I don't recognize that trauma hasn't just shattered my story. It shattered my a capacity to appropriately interpret my story for what it is, which is why it's so crucially important for us to be in connection with others who are going to help me tell my story more truly by helping me pick the pieces of the vase up and carry it into the room together, put it back together. That takes time. You don't, you just like it's not ready to hold water, Like, in the next two hours, it's going to take time to put that back together. Yeah. But I think some of the other things that we're learning about the brain, you know, when I was in medical school, uh, you know, now almost 40 years ago, you know, if you and I, on 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 the neurology ward, if you had a stroke, you know, you were on the unit for six weeks and we did PT and OT for, you know, a couple times a day and then we sent you home and wished you good luck. Uh, but wow. now, if you were to have a stroke, we send you to a rehab center where we 're going to work you ten hours a day, seven days a week, uh, because we believe that the brain has the capacity to recruit and create new neurons in ways that we didn 't we really weren 't aware it was able to do you know forty years ago and I would say that this is this is all very good news, and it is completely consistent with the work that we that we read about when Jesus talks about making all things new. That yeah. this isn't just metaphor; it's not just figures of speech, but it's for real, and it's taking place in real brains and bodies and relationships all the time. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That yeah. there's a there there is an actual physical healing reconstruction that is taking place when you're appropriately working through your trauma or appropriately inviting people into those spaces, safe people into those spaces, um, and 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 it, and that is what is. Is truly going to help you, you know, heal from mm-hmm. these things. And that, mm-hmm. I, what I love, um, I love this this idea you keep going back to with connection. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, even just kind of off offhand referencing the disconnection between you and I. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there is a certain angst involved with being on Zoom. Yep. Yep. It's become normal for us, right? Yep. It's become normal. Yep and And, and it 's convenient, how convenient is it that we can i don 't have to hop in a plane and fly to wherever you are mm, and you know mm, sit down with you in a room? Mm. However, there is a certain level of ah this just doesn 't feel right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right this isn't right
1: right I remember early in the pandemic, I wrote an essay on this uh, this this notion this this idea that uh, uh, I think the title was a body of work. And this this idea that when, when we were first beginning to have to encounter this, and Zoom was kind of new to everybody, and within the first two to probably four or five months, you know, there was just a lot of complaint about fatigue, Zoom fatigue, we heard about it early on, before mm-hmm. people kind of got used to this as kind of the new norm. And I, I wrote, about, we, we talk about this this notion of how, like, the body knows better. Like, yeah. when I'm looking at you, like, I, if, if this is something that I did, you know, a couple times a year, that's one thing, that's fine. But if I have to do this all the time, right. my mind typically, if we're in the room together, uh, there's a lot that you and I are t- saying to each other that, are, that we aren't using words for. And uh, that, that's very helpful for, like, I know that you're comfortable with yeah. me because of what your body is saying to my body in this way, all the communication that happens. Yeah. And now, like, I'm, I'm looking for this and I can't find it. Because you know, right. and, and you're, and, and you, and can't find it. And so, th- we, it's distressing. Yeah, and yeah. and at the same time, uh, you know, we we run these we run these confessional communities, uh, these these groups in our practice, and, and we have recently been bringing people back together. And uh, we had this uh, this moment that has now been re- replicated on a number of occasions. We had a moment, the very first group that we brought back into the room that has been away for two years, practically. And, you know, you're on a Zoom call with eight other people and you're talking to and you're right. looking at them and they're looking at you. But if you're talking to the screen, you're just talking to the screen and you're kind of looking at one person and then the other and so forth and so on. But you really, as far as your brain is concerned, you're really just kind of talking to the screen and these people who are disembodied and so forth. Right. The first evening that this group was back in the room together, uh, one of the participants uh, started to talk and they are two or three sentences in to just offering some reflections and they stopped. And they said, I just have to say like, this is suddenly very uncomfortable for me. Wow, yeah. Because before you can talk and you can see all these faces on a screen and your body doesn't have the sense that there are eight people who are looking at you. And now you're back in the room and every single sight line is directed at you. Yeah. And the yeah. felt presence mm. of others is a new thing, and and it reminds me of like, oh, this is to have that felt sense of distress because the world is now more real, Uh, you know, reminds me of the great divorce where, you know, the people get off the bus and they can't tolerate how real heaven is. Mm -hmm. We sometimes, you know, we can't tolerate the gaze of Jesus, the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel, and he looked at him and loved him. And somehow the ruler missed the look, or was he just not able to take it? Hmm. and this this is I mean when it comes to trauma, this is part of the part of what's tricky in our healing because the very thing that we most long for right connection, understanding all the things are the circumstances in which my trauma has taken place and my, you know, my brain remembers and the very thing that I most yeah. need uh, from you is the thing that I'm most terrified of at the same time. And yeah. so it takes a lot of courage and a lot of practice and a lot of time to slowly put my, get my foot back in the pool where I nearly
0: drowned. Wow. 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 This is where shame comes in, mm. right? This is where mm. the idea of, okay, okay, I mean, just as you said, the very thing that I need in order to heal is this reconnection, this presence. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we talk quite a bit about the necessity of the presence of God, you know, carrying us through, through this, right? right. And, and he comforts us in these moments in ways that nobody else can. And yet he's also surrounded us with community or he is intended to surround us with community that's going to help heal some of those fractured places of our heart as well. And as you say, the felt presence of both of those things... Can simultaneously be comforting and distressing mm-hmm. all at the same time, mm-hmm. and 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 we get to choose then which one of those feelings we're going to lean into, right, right. In order to find now, but 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 this idea of shame mm. tends to rear its its ugly head, and we all experience it to mm. different degrees, different levels, mm. and manifesting in different ways. Mm. Mm. But can can you kind of talk? I mean, you talk a lot about this um, as as kind of an undercurrent to mm. to all of mm. this that, mm. that shame creates this disintegration this barrier mm-hmm. between us and the healing that we so need mm-hmm. can you dissect that a little bit how do we overcome that shame
1: well yeah I, I I think it it does and I mean part of it is a function of the fact that uh you know we I describe in one of my books how shame actually begins to kind of take up residence within us as early as 15 to 18 months of age so mm. long before we have language so it's, it's a felt neurobiological neurophysiological event it's not just about oh i feel ashamed because uh what i did on the test or because i lied to my parents or the like those are those things are all true but that's not how it begins it begins as this felt thing that is distressing to me and i long before i have words to help me make sense of it and figure out what it is i i am embedded in it, and then i just find coping strategies for it, find ways to distract, mm-hmm. disconnect from it. And so I've been at it for a long time. And evil wields this in such a way that it then gets attached to lots of things. And what evil does most effectively is that it attaches, it literally splices neural activity of shame together with a lot of the things that we do in our life that are actually acts of beauty and goodness. Wow. And so I remember, you know, and, 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 and temperament is part of it and so forth. But, like, I, I remember, you know, I grew up in a house where I had really loving parents. I said, you know, I grew up in a loving Christian home, right, where we say, that's code for life sucked, but we're not really allowed to talk about it. <laughs> you know, and— uh, Wow. Wow. Um uh, it's not, no, it's, not, it's not. completely true. I mean, I'm. I'm sure that some people really do. And 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 I would say that if if anybody were to have been watching, you know, the, the you know the 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 film footage of my house, you know, you'd be hard. Yeah. You'd be hard pressed to think that I had that, that. there was a moment of difficulty in my childhood. Yeah. I had God fearing parents who were affectionate with me. Care. I, I don't have any questions about that. And at the same mm. time, I had a dad who didn't have much practice knowing what it means to be curious relationally about Mm. people. So like he and I didn't have a single conversation that I would consider to have been meaningful growing up. So without knowing it, there is a part of my mind that is like looking for my father's voice, but I don't know that I'm doing that. And it's not now until I'm in my 50s when everybody else in my family is dead that I'm wondering like, where the heck were you? Mm -hmm. And I have a mom who, again, deeply committed follower of Jesus, all the things, right, that that were wonderful, and was anxious, and was a, you know, kind of grew up as a functional orphan, and had her own set of traumas that I am pretty confident, you know, had leftover work that never never got tended to, and I ended up, in many respects, serving as, you know, kind of like an emotional confidant for her in ways that I never should have. Mm. And so, and then I, I'm in this place where like, oh, I, I, and and to make sure that she's not upset, I can't talk with her about all my existential angst about faith. So right. what does that all mean? It means I then create a story mm. in which part of the thread is that there's something wrong with me, A, for feeling bad the way that I do, when, as it turns out, the reason that I was feeling so much of what I felt was because I was disconnected from my dad and from my mom in ways that I shouldn't have been. But I don't know this. And like, they're doing the best they can. Like, this is not about, nobody's throwing anybody under the bus here, right? But this is my life, and I now have to contend with it. And so shame finds a way, well, okay, well, Kurt, you can do this and you can do that. You have certain skill sets you do, but like, it's always attached to, well, are you doing that well enough? And are you giving Jesus enough credit for where you've, you know, for where you're doing the things that people are giving you credit and like all the things like, Mm. so you're, 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 I, like I grow up like wondering when the next shoe's going to drop. Yeah. But you don't tell anybody that because of course you're ashamed of being ashamed. Right. Right. So it's only kind of like, you know, it's self reinforcing. Yeah. And, you know, this is the thing. Uh, people can be really effective in life. And uh, evil is more than happy to use our gifts uh, yeah. and use shame to hijack it. Uh, and and then when we find ourselves uh, really pain- in, in, in painfully deep water, uh, then we somehow feel ashamed that somehow we shouldn't be here. Like, look at all the things about my life that are good. I shouldn't be here. And so what do I have to complain about? And, you know. Wow. Yeah. wow. You know, I haven't, you know, my wife was not murdered mm. with, you know, with an invasion, a home invasion. Like, what do I have to complain yeah. about? Yeah. And this is what evil counts on.
0: Yeah. Because it's... That you discredit your trauma. Or that right. You
1: and as long as I can discredit small them? things, then I practice discrediting everything. That's right. Which ultimately means, if I don't have the experience of God's mercy even in those small things, eventually I'm not going to be able to be empathic and be an agent of God's mercy with anybody else's small, let alone big things. Because wow. I can't give people what I don't have. Wow.
0: Now. Yeah. So you began making up a story. Yeah. This is what we all this is what we all do, yeah, we're making up a story, we're seeing our story from a very skewed lens, um, yeah. and we're pretty brilliant at crafting those stories, yeah you know yeah, um by default and it and culture doesn't help us with that, mm. at least you know mm. non faith culture mm-hmm. especially nowadays, there is a very trendy phrase that people will throw out, and I don't know why people necessarily throw this out, maybe it's. A, Or an attempt to not feel or cast judgment, but it's that's my truth, Mm. and Mm. and you have your truth, Mm. Mm. and it's I feel like it's a very crafty, Mm. um, you know, trendy piece of uh, colloquialism Mm. that we Mm. we have now slipped into mm-hmm. because it, it's easier. It feels easier to just kind of like, well, this is, this is how I see things. And this, that's how you see things. And, but there, how does that hinder us, you know, to what degree is our story needing to be aligned with some kind of, as you said earlier, this, this true, mm-hmm. you know, standard or this true, you know, as you, mm-hmm. as you said, like the, the tuning for, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a certain resonance right. that it has to align with. Right. Well, you know, you, you, this, you, you
1: bring up a really good point. And like your example is really poignant because in that moment where a person would say, well, that's my truth or that's your truth, whatever, we, we might say that, you know, what they're really doing when they say that what, one way to describe what's happening in the room is that that person is using those words in that sentence as a way to regulate their emotional state. Like they're uncomfortable with something, mm. And this is what I'm going to say to reduce my distress. Mm. Now, if we were to say, "Wait a minute," I really want you to just tell me more truly what your story is. They could, at that moment, say, "This is what I believe," and I'm also like afraid to tell you that.
0: Mm. Wow. And
1: I'm afraid that when you hear that, you're going to either think I'm an idiot, or you're going to think I'm a terrorist. And either you're going to leave me because you think I'm not worth listening to because I'm an idiot, or you're going to find a way to kill me because you think I'm a terrorist. I mean, these things figuratively, wow. right? But wow. I'm afraid. And then the reality is, not only do I not want to be afraid, I really want to be your friend. Yeah. I really, I, I want to be, I like ideally want to be connected to you. I, I really, I I, I want yeah. to do that. So. In this most recent book, The Soul of Desire, we talk about like we are people of desire mm. and, and one, one of the things that evil does by using shame and trauma is that it wants to shear off and interrupt our awareness of, A, that we are people of desire, such yeah. that even if we are aware of it, we're just becoming people of devouring rather than people of desire. But mm. it also doesn't want us to say or to imagine or to or to get the hint that like even in the middle of a conflict or in the middle of a fight, like with our spouse or with our kid or with whoever, that what was underneath my fight is a longing. At the end, I want to say, I really, I really would like to be liked by you. So I would, lo- I would love, to, I would love to know that you want to be in the room with me and that I want to be in the room with you. And of course, you would probably say the same thing. Like, ideally, like we would say, like, no, I, yeah. like that's that's what I I want to be in the room with you. And I would go further and say, and it scares the living daylights out of me (laughs) even to tell you this much. To say that. To even say this much. Now, here's the thing. The very act of saying these things, which are truly acts of great vulnerability, are also some of the most liberating and powerful things that we can do. And evil does not want us doing this stuff. Because in many respects, those kinds of acts are small recapitulations of Good Friday hmm wow Good Friday is an act of vulnerability wow. it's an act of vulnerability and of course when we say here's what I'm here's what I'm thinking and I'm afraid to tell you this because I'm afraid you're gonna do this that's like Good Friday and we are trusting that on the other side of that Easter is coming. I can't know it for sure. Jesus is trusting the three days hence. His Father's coming for him. Wow. And evil wants to insert in every act of creative goodness and beauty the fear that our Dad's not coming. And so we have to be reminded that Jesus is coming for us. And the way we do it is by coming for each other. And that's how Jesus becomes believable to me. I can believe that he's coming for me because you do. They'll know you're my disciples when they see you coming for each other. How you love. Wow. That's so good, Kurt. And it's our traumatized selves that are just so deeply longing for someone to come for us, while at the same time, they're often really quite frightened of the very same thing. And so we who are also the ones who are coming to find... It's incumbent upon us to practice being aware of how patient we must be while we are simultaneously recognizing how patient God is like i'm you know i'm i'm uh i just turned fifty nine and you know there there are things I'm discovering. I've just, my, my my oldest brother, the third of my three brothers who died, died in in 2018. And you know they're just it's just true uh, that you there's certain things you you can't talk about in your family until certain people are dead. Mm-hmm. And in my case, it was everybody, <laughs> because once certain people are dead, then you don't have to worry about getting into trouble if certain things are talked about and never gets back to them.
0: Yeah,
1: and certain things started to be said and. I started to discover some things, you know, not least of which how much anger i had been carrying around for 50 plus years. And you're like, and I'm like, oh, I've seen where this anger has shown up in this place and that place and so forth and so on. And of course I'm thinking like, well, why, why wasn't this brought to my attention when I was like 18 or when I was 24 or other times in my marriage, like, so that like, I and others around me wouldn't have had to benefit from my professional sin- sinnerhood. Yeah. <laughs> and like I can imagine having this conversation, you know, in the new heaven and earth, and Jesus says, well, well actually, we actually did try to have that conversation. You remember when you were here and we had it we tried to have it again here. And like I can I can imagine him saying it gently and without apology, but without condemnation. And there's a sense in which we we can't—it's it, hard for us. When Jesus says to his disciples before his crucifixion, he says, there's, there's certain things in John's gospel, there's certain things that I want to tell you, but you're not able to bear them at this time. Mm-hmm. In the healing of our trauma, there are certain things. I mean, we can only bear the healing process a little bit at a time. Yeah, I can't yeah. get all the vase back together all at once. The structure is fragile enough in its having been broken that it can't tolerate all that we would expect of it in a fully healed vase. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like, you know, with some of my patients, I'm like, chop, chop. <laughs> what are you, what <laughs> are you waiting for? This. Like, all you're all <laughs> you're doing is demonstrating that I'm not an effective enough therapist. Like, <laughs> what the heck? But so this this sense of of patiently uh, being present as we allow ourselves the grace of God's patience with us at the same time. Yeah, I was. I'll just. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just. I'll just say this. I was with. I was at. I was at, lunch, I was at lunch today with one of my closest friends, who's been in this circle of friends that I'm so grateful for for thirty plus years, and I said to him this very thing. I said, Neil, I. Uh, it it completely flummoxes me why you're still here. But he is.
0: Wow. Wow. You know, what's, what's interesting about what you're saying right there, you know, this whole idea of, of Jesus having these conversations or, or attempting to have conversations with us and us being a little bit slow in the process and him being patient with us. Hmm. And... um you know i I feel like that as I was really trying to figure out how to walk through losing my wife i um there were some things that the Lord brought up to me about me hmm. that had almost nothing to do with the situation nope. yep yeah I mean as I look back at it, I don't think it had anything to do with the situation you yep. know, here I am if you were to look at the story and go, wow he was a victim of this situation entirely and yet the Lord Chose to use this aftermath season to lovingly point out some things in me mm-hmm. that that need to be healed yeah. and sanctified. Yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, and I, I, I was frustrated with that. I'm like, oh no, I'm just trying to heal from the oh, loss right. of right on bro. my best friend. And 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 now you're like, you're bristling some things here. There's some new yeah. wounding's coming up, and there's some new you know, and and yeah. yep. You know, I don't know if you have any commentary on that. I guess I'm now s- stating this as if you're my therapist going, <laughs> what? how do you explain this? How do you... It doesn't, it doesn't compute with me. Yeah. And yet, is there an intention, I guess, of the Father to... You know, in all situations, He wants hmm. holiness for yeah. us. Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, gosh, if we had, uh, you know, a couple more hours, I guess I could could say I could say more about this very thing that literally just happened in this same conversation with my Neil, with my friend Neil at lunch today. This we we found ourselves in one of those places where, uh, you know, I'm in a certain space in life right now where there are a couple of things that are happening that are making me a little uncomfortable and Neil's helping me walk through that and. In the course of this, in which I am tempted to feel a bit like a victim about certain things, Niels also like becomes, you know, Jesus' voice uh, and saying, "Well, here's some things that I'm actually seeing that it's revealing about some things that you do." And I'm like, "What?
0: Mm, wait, No, no. Hold right.
1: On. <laughs> right. And then he starts to tell me some things, and they are things that I am like completely oblivious to. Wow. but that are completely true. They're completely true. Wow. They're completely true. And as he spoke them, like it was like gentle, firm, kind. Tears in his eyes, and a revelation. Like somebody's just pulling the curtain back. Wow. And you know, so but I think for me, neurobiologically, and as we like to say, like mechanically, I think there's some mechanics that, if we think about them, can be helpful in this. So, as we said earlier, when we have trauma or shame, when we have, you know, things that happen to us that are unpleasant, uh and we don't repair those ruptures effectively, we're going to do whatever we can to reduce our distress as expeditiously as possible. That's what the brain does. Yeah, right. right. And so, I'm going to uh literally develop a, a, a an entire array of neural networks that are designed uh, to help me function in the world, and part of their design necessarily includes their capacity to disconnect me from things that are unpleasant that I don't want to sense or image or feel or think about.
0: Mm. Survival.
1: Exactly. But we effectively bury those things. We contain them. Mm. And we literally neurally— develop networks whereby which I function and there may be these things that are down there but I'm disconnecting myself from that it doesn't mean that they're not there because every time this experience comes up again I'm doing the same thing and those things want to come to the surface and I'm working really hard to reinforce my self protection from these things that I could uh, that I might otherwise be aware of and then and then a, but but What we're not aware of is that in so doing, I'm burning a fair amount of energy containing my wounds. Mm. Literally, I'm burning neural energy, I'm burning neurobiological energy containing wounds, energy that is then not available for me to create beauty and goodness in the world. Mm. It's part of my budget that is being siphoned off to pay for all my trips to McDonald's. (laughs) that i could be using to go to the gym but i'm i'm doing something else trauma disrupts neural circuitry in such a way that that circuitry that was effectively buried and from which i have cut myself off of conveniently in order to protect now is made more available to me and to my awareness Hmm. and hence in these, tra- in these traumatic moments, we have the emergence of new growth. I mean, this is this is like what happens in large forest fires. Wow. We have the emergence of new growth, and it's like, why? Like that, that, that that's a horrible thing that just happened to that forest. And then you see this new stuff that starts to sprout that otherwise would not have been available. And I you know my sense is that there are certain things that do happen that that God is present in, uh, in in which he's fully present even in our traumas, wanting to do everything he possibly can to bring healing and new generation mm. out of those very spaces where you thought it was all primarily about your being a victim, kind of like the things I was naming for my friend Neil today. And then, and we're saying like, well, it's true that these things are happening and this isn't easy. And let me invite you to consider some additional things that I'm seeing.
0: Wow. And I suppose if you are keen on writing your story or writing your real story, you know, telling it in a true way and aligning it with God's story, then your heart is open to receiving those things a lot more. So it's... If God's an opportunist, right, I mean, mm. that sounds very bad to say that, but if, if he is in some ways, he's going to leverage that opportunity yeah. to where our heart is soft to say, hey, here's some other things.
1: Right. Wow. And I think that for me, like today, like for instance, he was able to do that because it's being done again in, it's not, you know, it's not like he, he just show, it shows up with an email. Like it shows okay. up in the presence of my friend Neil a, with tears in his yeah, eyes about these right. things.
0: Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and that was probably a very um, almost spontaneous moment. You know, that probably wasn't something he had shown up planning to do. It was just this is where the spirit is leading in this moment right now, and this is the moment to take this. That's right opportunity. You know, I know we don't have much time at all left, but I I, I do want because I feel like this coincides so much with these confessional communities mm. that you talk about yeah. a lot, mm. and we talk a lot about. Community and how necessary it is in terms of you know the enemy's biggest ploy is to try to get us to uh, to be isolated right and to think that we're the only one going through what we're going through yeah and yet there are other people that are going through the same thing and there are other people who are not but as you've said can be there as empaths mm-hmm. to also be conduits of the grace of God mm-hmm. in these moments mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. can you explain to us what's the distinction in confessional communities versus what we just conventionally talk about with community, church community, mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah.
1: I think I, I, I tell folks routinely that <clears throat> in many respects, uh, there's very little, if, if you want to pan out and and take a broad look at these confessional communities, there's very little that happens in these confessional communities that in some way, shape, or form does not happen in any social interchange we have. It could be our small group at church. It could be the social interchange you have with the checkout clerk at your grocery store. There are certain rules of engagement. There are certain ways in which we are going to choose to be and not be and so forth and so on. In a confessional community, some of those rules of engagement that apply to every social interaction, every social system that we have are simply made much more intentional Because our purpose, our primary purpose for being in the room with this group is to ultimately work to develop depth and connection in the relationships that are in the room. Mm. That's probably not my primary purpose of what I'm doing as I stand in the checkout line at Safeway. I want to be kind. I want to be curious. But I'm not taking my groceries through in order to build a relationship with Judy. That's not really what I'm there for. That's what we are here for. But the thing is, even when we enter these confessional communities, many people, uh, we talk about these different stages that people go through, because many people still enter into them and they think, oh, I'm coming to this group in order to get information and help in order to go live in my real life that's outside this group. And then at some point, they reach a second stage in which they discover, oh, I'm not alone with the stuff that I'm having to deal with outside this group. And, I'm, and so now I have support and I have a group of people that are like-minded and so forth. And so now the work that I'm doing is to really connect with these folks in order to go live my real life outside of this group. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the penny drops because the people in the group will recognize I'm so comfortable here that now I'm just being my true, like my real self, like more and more and more of me that is real and unvarnished comes into the room. And the more of me and the more of you that come into the room that are unvarnished, the more likely it is that I'm going to piss you off. (laughs) The more likely I'm going to say something that's going to be upsetting, like we're going to notice some things. uh, And at some point, the work that happens in the room is the work of, oh, I want to talk about what's happening between you and me right now. Or somebody else says, wait a minute, Kurt, like, what's going on between you and Sarah? What's going on between you and David? Like, what's, what's happening? And I'm like, what are oh. you talking about? I'm here to talk about my life that exists out there. Like, no, something's happening right here and now. You know, I, I, you get this sense in, in, in when you imagine Jesus collecting these disciples along the way, that it's easy for us to think, oh, he's gathering up a group of people that he can teach— certain principles too, so that when he's gone, they can go then teach more people, and they can teach more people, and they can go teach more people. We forget that the primary thing that was happening in that space was that Jesus was collecting people into a group who largely, many of whom, didn't like each other. Wow. Yeah. And he's saying, the work, like, I'm going to teach you all this stuff, but the stuff I'm teaching you is in order for you to employ it and to appropriate it mm. right here. Right here. Wow. Right here in this group, and they're going to know they're like because they're going to know that something's up. If I can get Peter the fisherman and Matthew the tax collector to love one another, if you can get yeah. if you can get James and John to love Mary the prostitute, mm. and to do so in a way that does not just revictimize her, like people are going to look around and say like something's up with this. And, you'd, wow. and 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 that kind of work does not happen oh this is going to sound oh gosh that kind of work cannot happen only by preaching to 3000 people once a week
0: wow so true
1: Because preaching to 3,000 people once a week is the first phase of the group. I'm going to come and be in this space. I'm going to get what I need and go home to live in my real life. Yeah. But it keeps me from the opportunity of doing the hard transitional work, transformational work of being in the room with somebody that I'm pissing off, in the room that is disappointing me in the room that I really like and I'd like to sleep with, but she's not my wife. And so what do I do with all that stuff that's happening in the room? Well, I can just kind of go white knuckle it. Nope, because that's about things that are way beyond just between what's happening between you and that woman. Wow, wow. And so I I, I, I don't know that I'm answering your question effectively the way you wanted me to, no. but I, I, just, I, I would just say that what we want in these confessional groups, of course there's things about, we we want people to be confidential. We want people to do, you know, they don't talk to each other outside the group because they want to keep their relationship confined to that space and distill it and concentrate it. Um, And one of the, one of the primary things that happens there too, is that, uh, you know, in individual psychotherapy, if you're seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist individually, the you know the patient comes and is going to get help from the therapist and the patient is maybe we 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 hope that they find that that's helpful work but as carl manager once fa- famously said when he was asked like what's the one what's the first thing you tell your depressed patients to do when they're when they're depressed and he said i tell them to leave their house lock their door go find a person who's far worse off than they are and do whatever you can do to help them because part of our healing includes my capacity to be a conduit of healing and help for others. And not, and not primarily by my wit and my wisdom, but primarily right. by my own vulnerability. And so if somebody sees me individually, I can be helpful for them, but they don't get much of an opportunity to recognize that they're helping me very much. But when they're in a group, they get the opportunity to recognize how their vulnerability becomes a furrow that they're plowing behind which others come and know healing. And as St. Paul says, in my weakness, strength floods into the
0: room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm so so glad that you mentioned that there at the end, that part of our healing uh, is almost contingent on us taking our pain, turning it around to help other people. Right. Eventually. Because we get so... We get so focused on ourselves and our own pain. We can start navel gazing. We start turning inward, which is our natural human bent. And of co- it's very much our, our bent when we're undergoing some kind of pain or trauma or distress. And yet the Lord keeps inviting us to turn outward and to go and help and to go and serve and to go and be vulnerable in this. And And that is going to be a key to our healing. Uh, we, we say it this way. It's just very short and concise, pain to purpose. Mm, mm, mm. You know? Mm. There's a repurposing that is happening in us, through us, and then as God invites mm. us into purpose and we start to step into that purpose that you know, that that redeeming, redempt, you know, the redemptive purpose that he has for us, then then we continue to heal. Mm. And mm. um Man, I love that you, Mm. I love that you Mm. laid that out right there. Mm. You know, your, your latest book is The Soul of Desire, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you've got several other books that are out there, other pieces of work and writing and, but you know, we would love to know, um, where we can follow you, Mm. where we can connect with you, um, where we can hear more from you. I Mm. wish I could sit down and have a two more hours of conversation with you. Right right on. Yeah. (laughs) This Mm. has been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And, but I, I just mm. hate that we have to yeah. we have to cut yeah.
1: this yeah. short. Here. Well, um, you can uh, follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, mm. uh, follow me there, but and also uh, I have a uh, we have our uh, podcast, the Being Known podcast. Myself and Pepper mm. Sweeney do that, and we're just now starting to rec- we're beginning to record our fourth season. We're early at this. We just uh, the first season. Uh, debuted back in March of 2021, and so that, uh, and I think uh, that the podcast, in many respects, uh, gives people an opportunity to have an ongoing uh, um, introduction to and exposure to the kind of work that I yeah. do. So that's 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 one thing. Yeah. And then um, there's a this small nonprofit that I uh, started a few years ago called the Center for Being Known, and for people who are interested in, um these confessional communities and ways that we're trying to develop, you know, forms to export this in, into the world, um, the best way that we can, uh, you can look at the org, the center for being known, the cbk.org. Uh, you can check out, it's a small website where, uh, we've, we've just had our first annual conference last October. So we're gaining some traction and we're really, mm-hmm. um, really grateful and pleased for that. So those are some ways to keep track of me.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been an honor to have a conversation mm. with you. And I thank hope you. we get to do it again. I
1: would love to do that. It's just Indeed. Man, right on. It'd be so great.
0: Indeed. Thanks for joining you us bet. today. My pleasure. Thanks, Davey. Wow. I'm telling you. <laughs> I told you. This, I mean, just Wow. I honestly don't really have much to say after that because I feel like anything that I would say would just kind of fall short, you know, that, that was just, man, it was so enriching to have a conversation with him and it stretched me, it challenged me and it, it caused me to want to dig in a little bit more, um, intellectually to kind of figure out how we how we work. Here's the thing. I I, I want to encourage you. There are some people they, they are on an they're a lot more cerebral and, and, and you're listening to this and, and that's how you engage with things. You engage with things intellectually. That's what stirs you. That's what moves you that's what motivates you is when you connect on something with something intellectually. And then some of you are you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. You engage with things, you engage with God more emotionally, you know, and so this is, you know, the the difference between someone who really they feel closer to God when they're reading the Bible or studying. That's more the cerebral intellectual. Um, whereas the the more emotional person feels closer to God when they're listening to worship music or they're in kind of an experiential, um, uh, spiritual um, engagement pathway, right? So you've got like, like walking in nature, um, something that really stirs your emotions. Well, I think it's important that we don't zero in too much on one side or the other of that pendulum, that we try to find the tension between the two, that we kind of like a clock pendulum, we're going to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because, I mean, this is what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. He said, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And if if we get too far away from the truth head knowledge of things, then we can begin to deviate, right? And we begin to not Engage with God the way that God for who God is, we kind of construct our own God based on how we feel. But if we get away from the emotions of it as well, then it lacks life. it lacks, it lacks um, this, this organic uh, relationship that Jesus desires for us. So we don't want to lack substance and we don't want to lack life. and so we want to engage on all of those fronts. so I want to encourage you, if you're more of an emotional feeler you know, experiential type person to really engage your head. You know, it's the, the battle that we fight re- really starts in our mind. It's important to know the truth. Scripture says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, right? It talks about renewing your mind, that our thoughts are the things that really begin to um, have, uh, have sway over our emotions, what we think about, what we dwell on, okay? This is why um, Philippians 4 tells us uh, all these things that you, if anything is good, anything is true, anything is noble, anything is right, think about such things because our thoughts will drive our emotions, our thoughts will drive our actions, and then that drives our habits, and then that drives our lifestyle, and then that ultimately drives the trajectory of how we walk through these, um, these painful seasons. We've got to have a right and proper perspective of who God is of who we are and who and and what the world is. And when we right-size those things, then um, then, then, then what was suffering, as Viktor Frankl says, what was suffering ceases to become suffering because now we have an understanding of it and that understanding comes from our mind. Now, again, that's not to diminish the experiential side of healing, but I think we have to walk with both and we have to walk with both intention. Um, so that's kind of my like soapbox a little bit after listening to that conversation, uh, back over again with Dr. Kurt Thompson, just an incredible conversation. Hey, listen, if you haven't checked out any of the resources that we have for you on nothingiswasted.com, I want to encourage you to do that. We just relaunched our new community platform. We had a fantastic online summit that so many of you guys were a part of, um, last week where we had Daniel and Brittany Brooker and Kayla Steckline joining us and incredible. I mean, hundreds of you guys showed up for that and you're now engaging on our platform. So I want to encourage you to join the community platform, nothingiswasted.com community. And um, we just want, we want to walk this with you. And there are other people all over the world who are going through the same thing that you're going through, who also want to walk this with you. Our certified coaches are there. They're going to be engaging with some things and we're about to launch some stuff over the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. We're going to launch some things uh, like group coaching, like um, special master classes that our our certified coaches are going to be putting on. And so you're not going to want to miss those. So stay tuned. If you haven't subscribed to our email list, you can definitely go and do that. All of this stuff is at nothingiswasted.com. We are just passionate about helping you partner with God to take back your story, no matter what has happened to you and no matter what you've done. And so um, whatever you've experienced in life, um, you, you do not have to be stuck in your pain. You do not have to be paralyzed by what has happened in your life, but you can move forward with a renewed sense of purpose and mission and meaning in life. And that's what we want to help you with. So go to, nothing, go to nothingiswasted.com and check out all the resources we have available to you right there. Uh, we want to thank Sleeping At Last for um, for providing all the music for the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Go and download his music anywhere music can be downloaded and streamed. We also want to encourage you to follow us on the social networks. Follow us on Instagram at Ministries. You can follow me at Davey Blackburn. You can follow Aubrey at OBSAMP. Next week, we have a really great conversation with Catherine McNeil. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. So why don't you go ahead and take a listen to a little clip from my conversation with Catherine.
1: I don't think my you can really understand my story without realizing how much church was home and family for yeah. me. Uh, we were four—we were—I was four years old when my family moved to this church, so I don't really remember anything before. So these people, this building, this community um, was everything that I knew. Um, my dad being the pastor there was everything I knew about
0: my family, um, and— Basically, the the story begins one day when my dad was very abruptly fired.